Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. I'm honored to be joined today by Ed Walters, a true pioneer in legal tech and an incredible driver of change in the legal industry. You probably know that Ed is the CEO and co-founder of FastCase. FastCase has grown into one of the world's largest cloud-based legal software providers for the legal industry. It currently serves more than 800,000 subscribers from around the world. What you may not know is that before founding FastCase, Ed spent time in big law, as well as in the White House working as a speechwriter. He's not only an industry pioneer, he's active in the AJ space. He serves on the boards of Pro BonoNet, PublicResource.org, Friends of Telecom Without Borders, and Salsa Lab. It's also incredibly cool that he teaches Law of Robots, the class about the frontiers of law and technology at Cornell and Georgetown University Law Center. And if that's not enough, Ed is the creator of the Fast Case 50, a yearly list of 50 legal industry innovators who are drawn from all corners of the legal ecosphere. If you want to know who's who and who's coming up, it's a can't miss. Listen in to learn how this self-professed beer and softball lawyer became an entrepreneur and founder of a pioneering legal tech company, how launching during the dot-com bubble burst worked out for him, and what's next for Fast Case. I really enjoyed today's conversation. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed participating in it. You, you talked about teaching at Georgetown. I know you also teach at Cornell. I do. I have to admit, I, I've been out of law school now for 40 years, and I have never wanted to go back to law school, never, ever in those 40 years, until I heard about the class on the law of robots, and the law of autonomous vehicles that you teach. <laughs> <laughs> made me say, you know, wait a minute, maybe I'm missing something here. <laughs> You're welcome to audit anytime. <laughs> uh, what's, what's interesting about it, I heard you describe it as really a, a shell against which to teach people to how to think in a different world. Did I get that right? It's exactly right. Yeah. The idea is that law students today will graduate into a world that changes way faster than the world that you and I graduated into. But law is inherently like kind of a backwards looking profession. And there's nothing that teaches people in law school how to deal with things that change fast. We don't even know what those things will be. Is it going to be space mining or designer drugs or cryptocurrency? You know, who knows what it will be. But the idea of taking something that's happening right now, that's changing very fast and examining the way that the law looks at it and the way it challenges our existing law is so much fun. It's a it's a blast to teach and the students really enjoy it, too. It's sadly timely. You talk about things changing quickly with the pandemic. Uh, That's a perfect example of what you're talking about, I suspect, because Suddenly you're dealing with vaccine mandates and all of these rapidly changing issues that you don't know what the law is and lawyers are expected to answer the questions very quickly. That's right. And it's it's issues that range from like federalism to, uh, you know, statutory vaccine immunity, uh, legal immunity. And, you know, there's this issues all around it. It's, it's really fascinating and challenging. And in addition to the science advancing very quickly, there's a lot of legal issues there, too. Yeah. When you talk about the law of robots, what legal issues are you framing up for the students to get them to think differently? Well, so the the big thing for law of robots is when machines take actions or make decisions that people used to, 
how should law deal with that? And so a good example of that is copyright. Uh, there's very good software now that writes music. It's not great music, but neither is my uh, nephew's music. <laughs> and he can get copyright for it. So, you know, the question is like uh, if software uh, writes an article in the New York Times about a baseball game and there's software that does this every day and someone copies it, does the New York Times have a copyright interest in a baseball article written by software? Should they? And this is a frontier we see a lot, right? Because there are really good pieces of software now that can be generative in a way they never were in the past. Should AI creations be patentable, copyrightable, trademarkable? Oh, that's fascinating. Does that advance the interests that we have copyright for in the first place in the kind of Article 1, Section 8 sort of way? Or would that actually erode the interests of the constitutional creation of copyright? And is the creation in the software the output of the software? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that's that's fascinating. Well, your your students are fortunate to have you as a professor in such a fascinating, fascinating way. That's very kind of you to say. I, I get a, uh, so much out of it. I, I learned so much in that class uh, by teaching it. I can't recall from your bio whether you teach. I think you do, right? I've done a little adjunct teaching off and on at Northwestern and Stanford, and I haven't done it for a while. But every time I deal with students, it's just a refreshing change because they they ask the questions that get drummed out of you after you've been around for years. (laughs) Why do we why is it that way? Well I Exactly. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So Ed, you're best known as CEO and co-founder of Fastcase, but you didn't start that. You started, if you look at your resume, it's sort of this remarkable, you know, law school, clerking, working at the White House in the speech writing department going to work for Covington and Burling. And then you jump off the rails and start Fastcase in 1999. I think there were computers in 1999, (laughs) but but they weren't very good. It certainly was before there was such a thing as legal tech, before the internet had grown into what it was. I find that remarkable. Just from, and obviously you've had fabulous success since then. And so you, you, you found a path that was remarkably successful. But walk us through how that happened. It's a funny story. I was kind of a beer and softball lawyer. I was the associate that you would have take the summer associates out uh, to convince (laughs) them that your firm had great work-life balance. And I was living about half the year in D.C. and about half the year in Brussels. I had a great kind of gig as a young associate in uh, a big law firm. I was working at Covington and Burling. It's a great law firm. Yeah, and I, I owe them everything. They were terrific to me. One night, a Fortune 5 client of the firm, I won't say who they are, but let's say it's a company that specializes in making PC operating systems uh, and application software. And so they called and said, Ed, we have a question. The answer is going to be in case law, but it's too new to be in the books. So we need you to do some online research and find the answer to this question by tomorrow morning. But don't use the two incumbent services in this market. Don't use Westlaw or LexisNexis. And, you know, I said, as a young associate at a law firm, what's your problem with those services? Those are the services that our firm uses for legal research. It can't be money, right? Like your company's biggest legal problem this year is, what do we do with all this money? They were making money hands over fists. And they said, no, it's exactly money. Money is the whole problem because we have like 300 outside law firms who do work for us. And they all use those services and charge the pro rata percentage of it back to us. 
And so we are paying like tens of millions of dollars per year for other people's legal research subscriptions. We don't pay to put the books on your shelf. I don't see why we should pay to put them on your computer either. So find us an answer by tomorrow morning. Do it online. Don't use those two services. So I'm, I'm young, I'm optimistic, and I said, it's fine. I'll, I'll just go use whatever the third service is that offers online legal research, and I'll use that. But I couldn't, couldn't find Couldn't one. find it, could you? <laughs> the, the number three service kind of didn't exist in 1999. I spent hours like looking for some other way to do that research, and I couldn't find one. So at one o'clock in the morning, I'm punching the printer in our office suite, and my next-door neighbor at the firm comes in and says, why are you punching our printer? And I said, ah, you know, I spent four hours trying to find an alternative and I couldn't find one. So I broke down and I used Lexus. And it took me like 45 minutes to do something that should have taken five minutes. And it cost like $2,000. And now the client's going to be mad because it says Lexus on all these printouts. They said not to use it. The firm's going to be mad because we're going to eat the cost of uh, this research. And now I'm mad. Because I don't see why we have to, at taxpayer expense, pay judges and law clerks, agency regulators and legislators to get American law right, to give it away to foreign-owned publishing conglomerates. Uh, Westlaw was owned by Thomson Reuters, is owned by Thomson Reuters, Lexus owned by Anglo-Dutch conglomerate, uh, Reed Elsevier, now Relics. We give it away to them so they can sell it back to us for $518 an hour or $100 per search. And it's all in the public domain, right? It's not like I'm searching like a West treatise or something. I'm searching American law that we've already paid for. We give away and get sold back to us. And, and the software is terrible. Like the software in 1999 was like the worst you could imagine. Oh, it was awful. I remember yeah, I mean, that. Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> you may remember. So the, the way that you would rank search results in those services in 1999 would be like the highest court first, most recent case to the oldest case followed by the next highest court, the most recent case or the oldest case, you're in, you know, 700 results. Your winning case could be 698. Uh, and there were all these crazy things you would do back then to deal with that. You would like print all of the cases, you know, in 30 minutes and then read them over 100 hours so that you don't spend all of the time online. So anyway, the software didn't even work that well. And I said to my next door neighbor at the firm, I've got half a mind to go start the thing that I was looking for all night. And my neighbor at the firm said, huh, that's interesting. Hey, did I mention to you that I have a PhD uh, in physics from Caltech before I went to law school? <laughs> I said, no, you didn't mention that. He says, yeah, that's, that's actually a pretty good idea. There's a lot of people in 1999 in kind of the Web 1.0 world who are raising a lot more money to do a lot dumber things. It was the dot-com boom at the time? Yeah, and so we said, you know, maybe maybe we'll go give this a run. So we spent about six months of nights and weekends kind of building the first version prototype of what a modern legal research engine would look like. It did things like sort search results by their relevance for the first time ever. It used citation analysis to find what results were cited the most. So you could rank those things at the top, you know, things like resorting your search results to customize the order in which they're displayed. And it worked pretty well. So we left our comfortable law firm in November of 1999 to go start the biggest alternative to legal research services in the world. Uh, it was preposterously ambitious. Uh, November of 1999 is the, uh, you can put a pin in the calendar, is the worst month in American history to start a software company. 
<laughs> the whole internet economy exploded uh, several months later. I remember, yes. And you were there. I mean, yeah, I remember. everything touching the internet was toxic. Right. You couldn't raise a dollar. No, no. And uh, I, I couldn't raise a dollar. <laughs> we failed at that for uh, several years. It was, it was 2002 before we were finally able to raise our first money. Oh, that's, that's an amazing story. And now, 23 years later, here you are with a, an astounding assortment of softwares and capabilities. Yeah, I, I have to say, like, uh, there were many times on that path where we were pretty sure we should have gone back to our law firm. But in hindsight now, you know, 23, almost 23 years in, uh, you know, fast cases, our, our goal was to democratize the law, to make sure more people had meaningful access to the law and to make, you know, kind of legal intelligence smarter. And, you know, here we are 23 years in, more than 1.2 million lawyers have access to fast case either through their state bar association or their law firm. It's the most popular smartphone app for lawyers, according to the ABA tech survey of any kind, not just legal research. And people run millions of searches on FastCase every month. It's crazy. So it's uh, it's very gratifying to see it sort of worked out in the end, but it wasn't always certain that it was that was going to be true, for sure. Well, you, you, you've talked in some other podcasts about some of the unanticipated IP issues you bumped into on the going into with the theory that you could actually access government information for free, which turned out to be a bit more challenging than you thought. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, it's funny when we started, there were definitely some IP questions that we wanted to answer. One of them was resolved in the hyperlaw litigation where a company called Hyperlaw published judicial opinions with the pagination of West's regional reporters in line in the judicial opinion. And Thomson Reuters sued this startup saying that they had intellectual property and copyright where the pages broke in those reporters and said that this startup could not use those page numbers. For us, that was essential, right? If you're a lawyer and you're citing to a judicial opinion, you have to cite the page where the quote appears. That's axiomatic. It seems straightforward to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So these were kind of table stakes. And that that case was wrapping up in the Second Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court denied cert in like the 2000 era. So that was really important. And I think it was our instinct. And, you know, I was an IP litigator. My research indicated that at least the public law was in the public domain. There wasn't any question that we could use that. And now we knew that we could use the page breaks as well. So we were in good shape. Well, it turns out maybe not, right? Because there were all these instances where private publishers had gotten contracts to publish public law and had incorporated the copyright-ish material into the public law. And so there were these edge cases where the copyrightability of uh, these materials was in question. And, you know, a good example of this was the Georgia Code. Uh, In about 2010, Fastcase signed a deal with the State Bar of Georgia to provide legal research as a free benefit to every lawyer in that state. Which you've done in like 29 or 30 states. Yeah. So I think at that point, we'd probably done it in about, you know, 18. Now we have all 50. But at that point, we were fewer than half of the states. And so we had agreed in that contract to include the Georgia Code. And uh, we went online to the Georgia legislature's website to get a copy of the code to download it from the public source. Except when you do that, it actually opens in a LexisNexis site. 
And at the bottom of that site, there's a legend that says, you know, copyright 2010 LexisNexis. So, you know, out of an abundance of curiosity, like a like a good lawyer and I you know, think IP litigator would, we contacted the Georgia legislature and we said, hey, look, we're about to include the Georgia code in this free legal research service for the benefit of Georgia lawyers and Georgia clients and Georgia citizens. But there is this copyright legend at the bottom. And I don't know if that's like for the website or for the HTML or for the menus or whatever. But before we download the content, like the Georgia code, I want to make sure there's no copyright claims on that. And their answer to me was, don't download the Georgia code because LexisNexis owns it. I said, come on, guys. <laughs> you are licensing the official code of Georgia annotated from LexisNexis? And they said, yeah, that's how it works under our contract. And, you know, I, I, at the time, I thought that can't be right. The person I'm talking to just doesn't understand the relationship with the contract. But sure enough, you know, again, out of an abundance of caution, uh, we contacted LexisNexis. And they said, we own the code. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they said. I said, this can't be right. The Georgia legislature seems to think that you own the Georgia code. And they said, no, we do own the Georgia code. Uh, they said these annotations at the end of the code sections like we prepare, there's LexisNexis editors who create them, who write them, and we include them in the official code. And then that is adopted by the state of Georgia as the official code of Georgia. And so I said, you know, OK, that's I, I suppose I understand the point. I'm not sure I agree with it. But if you own the Georgia code, then everyone who uses it must license it from you. I'll license it from you. I'll license it from you. I'll play the game. Whatever Westlaw pays, I'll pay you. So let me license the Georgia code from you. And they said, you know, we'll we'll think about it. We'll call you back. <laughs> so weeks pass uh, and then they call back and they said, OK, we have your price. Uh, your price is never. <laughs> <Good price. laughs> yeah, you can you can never license the Georgia code from us at any price. Uh, we own it. It's ours and you can't have it. And so. You know, again, like trying to be a good citizen of a copyright and everything else, I said, so let me understand, you don't have a copyright on the text of the Georgia Code. And they said, no, you don't have a copyright in the organization or the numbering of the Georgia Code, right? That's all done by the legislature. And they said, right. Exactly what do you claim a copyright on? They said, well, the annotations we prepare, you know, all of the cases that cite the sections of the code are written by us. And so we claim a copyright on that. And then at the top, there's like a headline. In the profession, it's called a catch line uh, at the top of the statute section. And those aren't in the original acts from the legislature. We write those as well. And so we claim a copyright on the title of the official code of Georgia and the annotations that follow it. So we said, OK, well, if we can't license that stuff from you, we'll just create it ourselves. So we rewrote 35,000 catch lines for the Georgia code wow. from scratch editorially so that we could use the code. And then we use software to identify every reference to the Georgia code in 10 million judicial opinions. And then we resorted it so that we could display it at the bottom of the Georgia code. This was a hack. I mean, this is 2011 that we did this as a way of displaying the Georgia code. The Georgia code, as you know, had a star turn like uh, eight years later, right? Right. It did. Too bad you'd already invested all the time and money in it. <laughs> well, 
Yes, that is too bad. I think that ultimately the result validates all of it. For your listeners, I think this is probably something that is common knowledge by now, at least in our little nerdy corner of the world. But publicresource.org posted the entire Georgia Official Code of Georgia annotated, including the catch lines and the annotations on the Internet Archive. And not in the dark of night, they sent a letter to the Georgia legislature and to LexisNexis declaring that they were publishing it online for free, and that because it was the official code of Georgia, and there was only one official code of Georgia, once it became official, it was an edict of government and not subject to copyright. And after several years of litigation, a case they won in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, both LexisNexis and PublicResource.org both independently filed for cert to the U.S. Supreme Court, even though Public Resource <laughs> had won, asking for a kind of nationwide precedent. And ultimately, Public Resource won. The U.S. Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice Roberts, said if this is the official code of Georgia, it is an edict of government and therefore not copyrightable in a sweeping, amazing judicial opinion for public law. Yeah, it is amazing. The other thing that's amazing about it, if I recall correctly, was a 5-4 decision. Yes. So the, the, the answer seems pretty straightforward to non-IP folks, and yet clearly it was a matter of some heated dispute resulting in a 5-4 decision. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a common instinct. If you tell almost anybody that a private company believes that it can own the law, the response is that that's ludicrous. You know, that's preposterous. Can't possibly be true. That can't be true. And as of now, uh, as of always, really, it is not true. It never was true. There's hundreds of years of precedent that says that public law can't be copyrighted. But now we have this very helpful uh, opinion by the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court that reaffirms that. That's fabulous. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the growth of FastCase because you moved into what appears to me way more data analytics and, and AI in addition to incredible legal research software with Docket Alarm and Next Chapter and the combinations you've had over the last few years. What's the goal? What's the objective of FastCase with these acquisitions? Well, I would say that the goal has never really changed for us. The same things that got us so agitated that night in 1999 are the same things that motivate us today. We wanted to democratize the law and we wanted to make the legal information world a little smarter. And so the the idea is that more people should have access to the law and that we should, you know, make it more understandable to more people. So it's it's kind of interesting in the in the Pioneers and Pathfinders podcast. I think a lot about maps. In the days before there were maps, travel was pretty uncommon. People would be born and die in the same town because trips were hard. There was a lot of risk in making journeys. You wouldn't know if you would have enough food or water or money when you started to get where you were trying to go. People would die along the way. And because it was unknown, it was risky. And because it was risky, people just didn't do it. To the extent that you did travel, you would go with a navigator, someone who had made that trip before. But navigators, you know, although better than nothing, were kind of limited to their individual anecdotal experience. Over time, navigators started to tell these stories to each other. They started to write down what happened on these journeys. And these became the basis for the first maps. You know, these stories people would tell about their pathfinding along the way. And, you know, the first maps were terrible. They weren't at scale, but they were certainly better than nothing. And over time, every step of the way, every step where maps got better, more people traveled. And the more people traveled, the better the maps got. 
That's right. And so it was this virtuous cycle. Parenthetically, it didn't mean less work for navigators. There was like more work for navigators than ever because more people were traveling. So I, I think there's an interesting parallel with legal services and our profession, because right now, a journey through the legal services world is risky. You know, clients don't know how much it's going to cost when they start litigation or compliance or regulatory actions. And only, you know, a very small number of clients can afford to make those journeys, can afford to absorb that risk. So one of the things we're doing right now is we are aggregating the information in judicial opinions, in statutes, in regulations, but also in docket sheets. A docket sheet is a list of all the documents that are filed in a case in the order in which they were filed. Every docket sheet for a case is like a map. It is a chronicle of a journey through the legal services market. And the thesis is that if we can aggregate all of this litigation information about the steps people took along that journey, we can begin to understand litigation the way a cartographer might understand terrain from 30,000 feet instead of from six feet. And for the first time, when you aggregate that information, you can see what has happened historically, where the terrain differs. It takes a lot of the risk out of that journey for clients. And I hope uh, helps make the law more accessible to people. It makes it a journey that more than 20% of people with legal problems can take. You're familiar with this. The American Bar Foundation and others have done research saying that only about 20% of people with legal problems address those problems with the help of a lawyer. And some people say that's terrible. You know, legal services are expensive. And I wish that poverty, exogenous global poverty, <laughs> weren't so bad that people could afford to pay these very high prices for legal services. But I think a bigger problem is risk. When someone starts out on a journey through legal services, all of the risk is on the client. As a client, I ask a law firm, have you done this before? What are our chance of winning? What's the risk here? How much is this going to cost? How long is it going to take? Uh, the answer I get back is usually some version of it depends, uh, like the worst navigator in the world right. before maps. And so the hope is that, you know, if we can say, look, I can't guarantee you what it's going to cost here. I don't know how long it's going to take, but we've handled 108 matters like this in our firm. And the spread is between 15 months and 21 months. The mean is 18. The median is 20. And the thing that characterizes the longest or riskiest or most expensive of them are these two facts that aren't present in your case. So here's what it's bound to look like. Here is how you can budget for this. Here's how you can understand your chances of succeeding if we start this. So I think that's fascinating to me. And I've got a couple of questions off of that. One is you just posted a tweet where you posted from Docket Alarm the analytics around Katanji Brown Jackson's judicial opinions. That's right. Where you're combining some of the resources and the data analytics. That's an example, I suspect, of what you're talking about in terms of aggregating docketing information. Yeah, absolutely. What's exciting about this to me is that there are sort of facts in the world that are not unknowable. They're just unknown. And when we can aggregate information in this way, we can start to really derive insights. And I think this is a place where law is trailing a lot of other disciplines. I think law right now, legal tech, is sort of where fintech was about 20 years ago. But if you look at what happened in fintech, people looked at the history of stock trading and they looked at the historical multiples and averages 
and tagged that and encoded that. And for the first time, we're able to say, here's what happens to the stock price of companies under certain circumstances. And they could do simple regression based on that history. We can't do that in legal, not because legal is different, just because we haven't yet had the data. That was actually the question I was going to ask. I take the point objectively about using all these docket sheets and their their roadmaps to cases. I grew up as a litigator, and so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. But it's not always the most relevant information or most relevant data. I was interested for Judge Jackson, you did the analytics around her motions to dismiss as a district court judge. And out of 232 orders, there are 79 known outcomes. Now, that's certainly a, a useful set of information. But how do you deal with this data integrity, data hygiene issue that you've got to be counting? Does the software scrub it looking for something beyond just the entries or the codes they put into it? How do you distill this information into what's relevant? That's a great question, because I, I think that docket data historically has been pretty bad. The data quality has been terrible. Without getting too much into the weeds, like when you file a case in federal court, there is something called the nature of suit code uh, that's always wrong. It's always wrong. You know, you, or you're trying to understand what kind of case it is. The nature of suit code <laughs> is not a very helpful guide to that. It usually tells you what it's not. <laughs> right. That's right. So this is a place where we're actually using some natural language processing. In 2020, we acquired the technology of a pioneering company called Judicata. Judicata was started by a lawyer and former Google engineer named Itai Garari. And the mission of Judicata was to sequence the legal genome to understand when you know people use words about law, what they're really talking about. And so we use Judicata's technology to read the opinions and use natural language processing to figure out what they're about. And in this case, we're actually using standards. There's a standard setting body called Sally, S-A-L-I. And Sally has kind of a standard set of matter types, you know, what those cases are about. It kind of maps to nature of suit codes, but it's sort of, it's more of a superset of them. And so we actually use Judicata's technology to read through these docket alarm briefs and then to say what the cases are about using these Sally kind of different matter types to really understand what kind of case they are. And, you know, one case often is about many different things. You might have a jurisdiction issue wrapped in a copyright issue, wrapped in a contract issue. And we're pulling all of that out now in a mix of artificial intelligence and human editors who are you know, going through doing quality assurance. I think both things are really important. So you also talked a little bit about how law firms mining their own information. It takes us this long to get these cases, the average. How do you advise law firms their data isn't necessarily pristine? either because they haven't been using it. And unless you actually use data, you're never going to bother to put it in correctly. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a great question. I I think this is fascinating. So law firms are some of the biggest American partnerships, companies, corporate structures with no assets. You know, I mean, law firms can have billions of dollars of revenue and hundreds of dollars of assets. Right. That's right. <laughs> you know, the assets are like the depreciation on the computers that they own and a few Persian rugs, uh, maybe artwork. Oh, uh, yeah, sometimes artwork. Usually not very good artwork. <laughs> right. But the, the assets of law firms are astounding because law firms have this expertise that is priceless. 
firms that specialize in a particular area of law will have experience and data that is incomparable to their clients. And it's an asset that could be repurposed that law firms could actually use to provide better service to clients. And by the way, you know, create new products for clients too. So I've always said that for law firms, if you can go through just your billing system, you know, to understand for an individual client matter, what it's about, where it starts, where it ends, how much it costs, maybe going a little step deeper, understanding the various steps of different kinds of litigation. This is something we're doing in Docket Alarm 2 now to try and understand like how things progress and what the costs are if it gets resolved through a motion for summary judgment, for example. But I think if if firms could understand nothing else, only the documents and information in their billing system, that could be an amazing product for clients. I'll give you maybe just two examples, right? If a firm understood for a big repeat client, say Walmart, how many employment litigation matters that were brought against the company and what the seasonality of those is, when they occur during the year, where they occur in the country, just from what that firm handles. If there's an uptick in a particular region, say you start seeing more cases than usual in Texas beyond some standard deviation, then you could say proactively, hey, you may have a training problem in Texas. I'll handle the litigation for you. But beyond that, Let me show you quantitatively why there's something going on here that you can't see yet and that you can save yourself $4 million in your litigation budget for the next two years if you take $100,000 of remedial action today. Again, these are not things that are unknowable. They're just unknown. And I think they're living inside of firms' billing systems. A lot of firms are standing up really nice knowledge management efforts now, a KM systems that hold their documents and make them more easily retrievable. But I think firms should read them too. <laughs> if you right. <laughs> if you're able to understand what's happening in those documents, there is such a wealth of information for clients. You're right. The law firms are just these data rich environments. I know a number of law firms who are trying to mine that information with varying degrees of success. Is Fast Case thinking about aiming its products towards this particular market? I know that's not historically been part of your marketing or product development cycle. I think the answer is an enthusiastic yes. So we're working on some products right now that law firms can use on their own data to extract these kinds of insights. We launched one a few years ago called AI Sandbox, where we can create a virtual server firms can own and do the data analysis in there. Now we're working more with APIs. And so a firm can say, For example, give me API access to all of our firm's final work product as seen in Docket Alarm. All of the motions and briefs and pleadings we filed in federal courts and state courts, and not the eight versions of them that are in our firm's network, (laughs) but the final as filed version of it. And we can do that. We can say, like, we already have your document management system, in some sense, incorporated into Docket Alarm. We can give it to you with an API. Or if a firm says, look, we have a representation relationship with Intel, some firms are now starting to say, like, give us everything we can see about Intel from those litigation documents, all of the state and federal pleadings and motions and all the matters that they've had before these courts. And also like who represents them? 
how it changes over time. You know, how is our firm doing? Are we representing them more or less? But I could imagine in the future, like, you know, the firm would have its own kind of document management system, but it might also like privately host a document management system for their clients. This is the special Intel war room. And we have in this room all of our documents about you, but also all of the documents about you from all of your litigation everywhere. And we can analyze that for you. You know, we can look at your costs. We can do some special consulting for you about your litigation with other law firms. We can benchmark ourselves versus them. And this is not some flying car future thing. The data all exists to do this work today. All the technology exists now. And so I think this is a real frontier. If you take our mission as democratizing the law and understanding legal research and legal intelligence better, this is like right in the heart of our mission. Absolutely. It's really exciting. And we've, we've blown way past the time. <laughs> I could keep going forever because this is just so fascinating to me. But I want to be mindful of your, your schedule as well. So we'll, we'll end it here. And I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights and the conversation. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. I'm, I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.